happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for September the 21st, 2021, episode 216. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I have been doing some grilling lately. We had some grilled chicken wings tonight, and they were lovely. But... On the other side, basking in the light, which must come from the apple goodness he is now fully experiencing, Dr. <laughs> Jason Neifer, Missoula, Montana. Hello, Jason. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Yes, I am here, and uh, the, the days are getting long again, which is super awesome. Um, I am in my upstairs guest room office uh, in the Casa de Knife, and uh, the sun is shining into the, the corner window um, in my office. Um I, again, I am in Missoula, Montana, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula. Um, but I don't think we're here to talk about the weather. I don't think we're here to talk about the light that's shining into my beautiful office. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, Jason, since you asked, we are a weekly tech podcast, and we are a tech news podcast with an educational so we are going to use our our educational proverbial educational lenses to talk about recent news. Uh, there's a lot of Apple news, of course, since there was an event yesterday. But we will try to shed some light on big trends as well as just new new details. Uh, we'll have some geeks of the week at the end, and you can access all of the show notes, which we probably will not get to on edtechsr.com/links, where we have all. 217 of our shows still archived someday. We may make a new Google Doc, but we haven't yet. Well, let's see. Uh, our topics tonight will include security, uh, the movement we call the tech correction, social media, Apple News, connectivity, Microsoft, Google News, uh, a category I'm calling random, and I have kind of a personal story of weirdness to share with you regarding the random topic tonight. And then, of course, we'll do our Geeks of the Week. Wes, where should we start tonight? Well, I know we're going to spend quite a bit of time on Apple News because we had a big Apple event. So why don't we actually um, start somewhere else? And I think I want to go back to this. Um, there were a couple a couple articles. Let me see if I can find what I put it in. Um, this one, let's see, it's the Wikipedia article that talks about Wikipedia going to work. Did I actually miss getting that one in? Uh, maybe I did. Um well, okay. Um, let's 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 go to social media and talk about Parler coming back online because, and I'll put I'll drop this this article in next. We have this one under social media, so this is The Verge on April nineteenth. I think this is actually your your article, but I'm glad you put this in. Apple will allow Parler to return to the App Store. As folks know, probably there were a lot of things that happened after the January sixth Capitol insurrection, riot, breach, whatever you you want to call it. Um, and one of them was that Parler got deplatformed by both Apple and Google from distributing their app on the store. And there were a lot of other things that happened as well. Um, so I think that it is positive that, uh, apparently, uh, Parler is going to enforce some, um, moderation on their content and that they're going to meet the standards, um, that Apple, you know, is requiring. I would expect probably Google is going to follow suit. And, um, one of the things that, is challenging in this whole environment is how much power the tech companies have, big tech has, over 
speech and outside the the regulatory arm of pretty much at this point the the United States government to some extent. But anyway, um, your thoughts, Doctor Neifer, is this something that was inevitable? Sure. Well, I mean the the news was was was. Uh, the news broke as part of a response that Apple gave back from their government relations folks to an inquiry from a couple members of Congress. And the, the, the point they made was that there were some concessions made by Parler to be able to get back onto the platform. One of which was they would start doing some content moderation. And we've reported a couple of times since Parler had been kicked off of major platforms that, that this was really going to be the inevitable result if they are going to get back onto mainstream platforms, that they would have to find some way to, to, to uh, moderate content. And, um, you know, we also reported several weeks back that a number of Parler users were surprised to find out that Parler uh, gave uh, uh, authorities access to uh, photographs and posts of users as part of subpoenas because, uh, you know, they, they thought that that many of the users thought that that free speech, I'll put that in quotation marks, also meant that you were free from implication from 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 saying those those uh, whatever phrases that would get someone in trouble in that context. And I think that there is a real uh, kind of coming point here, right, that, that there's going to be a, a, a resolution where people figure out that free speech really isn't uh, a truly free speech. And that also there are implications to actions, even though that there is a, a vibrant First Amendment in the United States. It's never been unlimited speech. That's never been the interpretation. And every time the Supreme Court weighs in on free speech, it generally narrows speech as opposed to expands it. Because the bottom line is, is that it started off fairly uh, 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 expansive, and there have been times when we've decided through our legal system that we would scale back uh, a speech there. So I'm not surprised in particular that Parler's back. We'll have to see what um, their version of um, of, of mo- content moderation looks like, because if it is anything like the previous uh, uh, you know, platform, I think it could be subject to uh, criticism from the major platforms again. Yes. And I finally did drop, drop this link in. This, this one is, um, a little older from February 4th, but this is an article, uh, also under social media, uh, from Washington Monthly. And the title is, When the Capitol was attacked, Wikipedia went to work. And I found this article listening to the latest Twit podcast from last Sunday, which predated the, uh, the Apple event, of course. Um, is that right? Or was it? I think maybe, or maybe this was at lunch. I, I listened, yeah, I listened to a, to a panel talking about Wikipedia at lunch. Sorry. Um, and, and the 20 year, you know, 20 year anniversary of, of Wikipedia. This is a fascinating article talking about, you know, how the fact that media is social doesn't make it unfixable. Wikipedia is a tremendous resource, and I will put also into the show notes this link. This was from Renee Hobbs and the Media Education Lab. Uh, they did a three-part series on Wikipedia, and this was a panel. I haven't listened to the entire thing, but the point is, like, the, the Wikipedia that we knew in the early days is not the Wikipedia of today. And when you look at what happened January 6th and the ways that the Wikipedians responded, and how did they even decide what to title the article, you know, much less vet sources and determine what to present, because Oh, shock of all shocks. When you and I log into Wikipedia at the same moment, of course, because it changes, we both see the same version. 
That's not true on Facebook because based on what we've liked and the algorithm and all these different things, I mean, we literally, you know, are presented quote unquote, a, a different window into reality or whatever. It's just a, our, our feed is curated differently. And so anyway, I think this is a super, super article, um, highlighted because sometimes with this tech correction stuff and it's, it's kind of doom and gloom and oh my gosh, there's no way forward. Wikipedia has found ways forward. I mean, the, the, the platform has not imploded. Uh, they're extremely successful when, when breaking events happen. One of the things they do and they talk about in the article is they'll lock the platform temporarily. And I think they said you had to have over 500 edits and have your account active for over 30 days. And they, they did that two day lock for a while, you know, right after the, the, uh, the capital, uh, we'll call it the capital riot. Um, the cap, the, the breach happened. And, um, Anyway, just a fascinating article. And I will say this. I believe that <laughs> I'll go on this. I believe that we should be studying not only using Wikipedia, but studying it and seeking to understand it because this is an essential part of literacy today is the way in which, you know, we've always done this in terms of academia, right? Research and attribution and sources and documenting all of that. And the way that happens in Wikipedia is absolutely fascinating. But the way the speed and velocity with which, you know, events are, um, are are documented and shared. Anyway, it's just a great article. And I think it fits under that social media headline. And I really think that as teachers, we need to if, if we haven't been taking a serious look at Wikipedia and how we can have conversations with students about it at a minimum as a launch pad for further research and investigation, um, then we need to do that because it really is a fantastic source. Yep, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. A couple other quick social media articles that I think are interesting. The Guardian reported on April 13th that there was a study out of the University of Hill in Spain that focused on politics and political tweets. And in particular, they looked at Twitter. And what they found was that tweets were much more likely to get interacted with, retweeted, and liked when they featured a negative uh, a take on a topic as opposed to a positive take on a topic. And what's interesting about this, and the Guardian newspaper article goes into some detail about uh, why this is the case, and also how there's a real lack of, 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 of research on social media by topic. There's lots of, of research about things like, for example, on Twitter, if you add hashtags, you're more likely to get interacted with. If you add links, you're more likely to get interacted with. If you add images, you're more likely to get interacted with. And that's really a lot of social media marketing on Twitter 101, but that it basically said that you're much more likely to get, to get interaction from other individuals if you have a negative take on the topic. And we've been talking quite a bit, uh, really, since the, the beginning of this podcast, that the bottom line is that that social media is obviously comes with a lot of baggage, despite all the positive things that social media brings us. And one of the things we have to figure out, and this is particularly true about educators, is how to talk to kids about social media in a way that maybe encourages better use of the platform. And when you think about social media, and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that one of the reasons why a lot of kids are so engaged by social media is because it can be a bit of a narcissist activity. Right. Like you can present yourself. Uh, you can uh, ask for feedback. You can get 
positive or negative feedback from peers as part of your social media engagement. And if you're more likely to get negative, uh, I'm sorry, more likely to get responses with negative um uh, uh, tweets, negative Facebook posts, negative Instagram posts, negative uh, TikTok posts, and that just gives you a sense of of the challenge ahead of us in that regards to social media. Now, Wes, I have to say, you're a pretty positive social media guy. Your presence is is generally pretty positive. Do you notice any trends regarding that in regards to your personal use of social media? Wow. Yeah, that would be an interesting analysis, right? Maybe Apple's going to add that in the next feature set. How many different, you know, things did you, how, how, what was your time? We got screen time, right? Yeah. Yeah. An analysis of the, here's a content analysis fueled by AI, which by the way, I, I fully, you know, read that article you'd shared last week that said I would like, and it is, it's amazing because it talks about <laughs> AI on the, on the edge, you know, and not everything in the cloud. Anyway, it has me thinking about stuff, but, um, Probably, you know, there's a, there's psychology here. I mean, I heard someone today say there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, there are that is true to a degree in terms of human psychology, our brains, what we want to pay attention to, you know, the velocity of 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 uh, information today is new under the sun. Like we have not ever had a generation on our planet that has been globally connected where both, you know, information and disinformation and you know, photos and videos and all this can spread around the world so fast. But I, th- I think that is probably true. I also think it's one of these things we've need to be aware of, you know, this back to the social dilemma, which if you haven't seen that on Netflix, go watch the social dilemma. We need to be thinking about the, the feeds that we're bringing into our minds and what we're spending time looking at and paying attention to. Uh, and I think that we need tools that help us, you know, make better choices with that. That's what Apple screen time and Google screen time, these kind of tools. One of the things that they can do is they can help us be more metacognitive about our own decisions and thinking and our choices, and then hopefully make, make healthy choices. So I think I, you know, we're, I'm, t- I'm t- in the middle of my conspiracy theory unit with my sixth graders, third time, this is our third trimester, and I'm teaching the SIFT model and F is for stop. We talk about emotion. We talk about things that make us upset you know, and how we need to be aware of that and, and be, uh, you know, thoughtful with what we do with that information, how, how we handle it. So I think probably as human beings, we are all susceptible to what the findings of that article were. And so we need to think about the choices that we make and the ways and, you know, what tools we use to bring information into our, our brains and into our, in front of our eyes and into our ears and then how we use those tools. Yep. Absolutely. I'll pick up one more social media since we're on the the track. There was, uh, of course, a significant uh, decision made by a jury this week in the case of uh, Chauvin and um, the the wrongful murder of George Floyd. And so there was a really uh, nice article that the Washington Post had, which I don't know about you. I don't subscribe to the Washington Post. So in order to actually read this article, I have to do it in incognito mode. And for whatever reason... There, I, there, a cookie hasn't been set or whatever. When I'm just trying to view this on my regular Twitter profile, it, it pops up and says, hey, you got to subscribe. Well, and now it doesn't. So that's weird. Maybe they, they made it free. But the article is uh, by Margaret Sullivan. Um, it's from yesterday, April 20th. It's called By Bearing Witness and Hitting Record, 17-Year-Old Darnella Frazier May Have Changed the World. And so she was the person who recorded the entire um, incident of... Uh, of uh, Officer Chauvin 
uh, putting his knee down on George Floyd. And, you know, that video was a video testimony that the world saw and that the, the jury took into consideration. And it is, uh, and she was 17, you know, and so, Yes, we had the live stream of the, the shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, and, you know, we've had the, the, this terrible, and this is terrible too, right? The, the murder of George Floyd was terrible, but the fact that a 17-year-old uh, young lady recorded that on her phone and shared that on Facebook, you know, has, has changed a lot, and, and I would argue has been, a po- has been a positive catalyst in a very terrible situation for conversations that we need to have. And it points to the value of social media and the need that we have for, for accountability uh, for all of us. And so I thought it was a good editorial. Yeah. I, and it, it's funny you should say that too, from, from a second standpoint, um, I, I used to uh, do a pretty regular uh, talk about uh, the, the disruptive nature of everyone having a video camera. And by the way, if you doubt the importance of the video in regards to the, the, the Chauvin trial, look at the closing arguments of the prosecution who said that, you know, you, you were there, right? You, you, you saw what happened. You saw what happened from a number of angles. They had lots of video when everything was all said and done. And that would be different than relying just on witness accounts. Of, of that situation. But one of the things that was always quite extraordinary to me is that um, I, I lived through 9-11 as a teacher. I was an early career teacher on September 11th, 2001. Um, I'm in a social studies classroom. So obviously it meant um, uh, that I spent much of, of, of that day and really the next several months helping my, my students through that and interpret that and look at that from a, a historian and political science perspective. But something that, that, that I've always been so uh, uh, kind of stunned by was that it wasn't that long after 9-11 that suddenly everyone was carrying around a video camera in their pocket via their phone. And, um, you know, there were there were lots of videos and photographs taken that day. There are archives online where you could see collections of that. The 9-11 Commission, part of their job was to collect every photograph and, and, and every piece of media on that. And there are archives of the, that the Library of Congress has put together for that. But today, um, very little uh, can happen where there isn't someone available with not just a a, a, a pedestrian camera, a high definition, uh, uh, high quality audio uh, video recording of things, and that changes really everything, and 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 suddenly creates a much different uh, atmosphere for that. And um, uh, I, I I read those stories too uh, post verdict yesterday, and um, I would say that that. Well, to, to borrow some, some West Friar language, this is part of why we need to help our students understand the nature of storytelling and that they all can be a witness to everything around them and that they, uh, it, that they have a role in all this. And there's a positive way to go about this to capture stories, not positive stories, but what's actually happening around you to provide perspective to others. Peggy George in our chat room and shout out Peggy. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, points out that yes, often people just retweet things based on the headline and don't even read them to Twitter's credit. I'm trying to think if this was happening because of, of uh, January 6th. No, it was the election it, before the election. Twitter started to do something where if you, if you, because would I ever do this? Oh my gosh. Or maybe it was on another page. So sometimes I'm seeing things in different panels. But anyway, if you had not clicked on the article to read it in the account that you were in, 
it would, it would say, and then this has been brought back. I think this was just going for a while, like leading up to the election and maybe they took it away, but it's back. It'll pop up and say, uh, do you want to read this article first before you retweet it? So it's just this little nudge, but you know, that that's important. Um, and Peggy also, you know, pointed out that, you know, sometimes there can be negative headlines to entice you to click and has positive content. I, I actually am talking to my students about what is clickbait, you know, and we're writing blog posts. And so we're trying to, you know, have, have a good headline, have a good title, but all those things are important to be aware of because yes, it is still a battle for our eyes. We don't live in a information economy. We live in an attention economy and lots of people are struggling to get our attention. So. Well, speaking of attention, I think, Dr. Neifer, that Apple may have gotten a little bit of your attention yesterday and today. Am I right or wrong? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I'd, I'd actually forgotten that, uh, um, uh, that, that the event was happening yesterday until about halfway through the event. And part of it's during my work day. So, um, but I did tune into the last part of it. And then I obviously looked at all the media. So, uh, Apple announced some new stuff yesterday. And to be super clear, I did think that they were going to announce new, uh, chips for, uh, the Mac lineup that, uh, a lot of mainstream media resources pointed towards that there would be an M2 chip or M1X chip or an M2X chip that would be released that would include a bunch of new laptops and perhaps desktop uh, platforms as well. That didn't happen. I've read some articles uh, that kind of analyzing that to suggest that maybe later this year there would be uh, new, I, I, I would call it pro uh, uh, equipment that would be out, you know, like a, a Mac Pro, or perhaps there's lots of rumors about new form factors for a Mac Pro, maybe a 14-inch Mac Pro that would replace the current 13-inch that has a larger screen but not a larger footprint. But let's talk about some of the interesting stuff that was released yesterday. So first and foremost, uh, the big hardware announced yesterday, uh, the iMac uh, is now available. Uh, they have not depreciated the other iMacs available. So you can still buy a, 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 a 27 inch iMac with an Intel chip. You can buy a 21 and a half inch um, iMac with an Intel chip, but they're releasing a new form factor that is a 24 inch uh, Mac. It is the first new update in this form factor. I think it's in eight years was the last time they updated the form factor in the iMac, which is a, a, a an incredibly long time in computer model world, but they have the new M1 chip, uh, 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 that's now available in um, uh, uh, in the platform, and I guess the, the the probably the thing that's most stunning to me. I mean, there's a lot of little stuff, but it's a really beautiful piece of hardware. They're offering it in seven different colors. Um, it looks like a giant iPad, actually. It's very flat. It's very thin. Um, uh, it's obviously uh, very stylistic, um, and it will offer. Um, uh, you know, the, the very fast M1 chip in, in a brand new, very stylish form factor. Um, there aren't a ton of details yet. No, obviously no benchmarks, probably not a ton different than the currently released models. Other than I did read an interesting uh, analysis this morning about the potential new iMac that they think this could be faster than the laptops and even the, um, the Mac mini because there's two, there's an active cooling system, um, in the iMac. And I don't know where you fit that because it is a pretty thin package according to the photographs, but, um, they think that it might be a little faster of a platform. Um, it starts at $1,299. Uh, you can actually get a, uh, uh, 
a faster one with more RAM and more space on it for, for much, much, much more money. But uh, the iMac, new iMac is here. So I guess I'll start with this, Wes. Um, anything tempting uh, iMac-wise for you? Well, I'm happy for my school to provide me with my technology right now. So we're not, you know, planning to go out and shop for anything other than maybe, you know, a new laptop for uh, one of our children. But um, I'm just thrilled. I am thrilled because, you know, the, 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 the return on investment we have had, speaking personally for, for Apple devices that we've bought, ha- has been stunning. It's been fantastic. It's been far beyond, you know, I mean, I don't know. We're still using older Chromebooks and things like that. Not the ancient original ones. I'm still using a Dell Mini 11 for a while with, with kids. And, you know, anyway, we're, we're, we're getting years out of them. But um, I think actually not... Hardware wise, the air tags might have been the thing that immediately caught my eye a little bit yeah. more. I did not see the whole event, but I will certainly, you know, I'm certainly excited to see M processor power in all of Apple's devices. And I think that at whatever time, I mean, I've, I, I, I really enjoyed as, as a tech director, you know, having a 27 inch iMac and, just being able to have that that large space and things, and um, I I will be excited at some point probably to think about doing some some more investment, but not in the in the short term. I think I might have mentioned our school. It looks like is going to be rolling over, refreshing all of our faculty laptop devices to to M processor, you know, Mac Airs this summer. So that will be that will be exciting. But we won't have to. I won't have to be investing in in that. For myself, but we may we may purchase one for a daughter, but she's going to be portable because, you know, if you're a college student, why why get an iMac? You know, sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the new iPad for a second and then I'll, I'll, I can make a quick list of the other uh, smaller things. So the there's a new iPad Pro, two new iPad Pros out and the larger one, the 12.9 one. Um, is the, the, the biggest headline there is that they are going to put the M1 chip in there, which is their desktop class processor. That's the one they're sticking in. They stuck into the marvelous and, and very, very well received, uh, new, uh, 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 MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, and the Mac Mini in late 2020. And I, I guess I, I still don't see the, the iPad personally as a, a laptop replacement. I just think the operating system still doesn't isn't quite there for me um although i have recently purchased uh it's not a new ipad but an updated ipad that i'll talk about a little bit later in the show but um you know the it, it looks like a stunning piece of hardware and it does have up to 16 gigabytes of ram and you can get it with 2 terabytes of storage it has a thunderbolt port on it which is also a very pro move to throw a thunderbolt port on there and the maxed out uh, 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 iPad will now cost $2,400, which is just an incredible amount of money. For two uh, terabits of day of storage. So yeah. if you think you need that, you know, go for yeah. it. Yeah. And it's got 5G support and it has a USB-C port, which is, has Thunderbolt on it. And they're announcing something that they call a liquid retina XDR display, which has a um, thousand nits of screen brightness, which is insane, right? It means you'll be able to see that very clearly in, 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 in the highlight of day. Um, so yeah, interesting piece. Um, and then I'll just uh, kind of go over the other quick ones. Um, they're, uh, uh, 
evolving the Apple card, something that I right at this point have almost no interest in, but it does allow you to share your card with someone in your family over the age of 13. So in other words, you use your Apple card, you have your, your, your kiddo put it on their iDevice, their iPhone, and they can use it with your approval, I believe, on individual purchases, which I think is an, is an interesting uh, piece of that. Um, Apple podcast, go ahead. I'll add to that. You know, we're seeing a dramatic lash of the Titans here between the tech, the tech giants. And, and part of that is Apple versus Facebook over surveillance, capitalism uh, and privacy. And so one thing not everybody realizes is that, you know, if, if you're certainly having any kind of credit card with Citibank or Wells Fargo or anybody big, they are almost absolutely for sure aggregating all of your spending data and selling it to advertisers who are then going to be using that in this opaque cloud of data in the sky that, you know, is used to do targeted advertising and, and marketing towards us. So one of the things that Tim Cook said in the keynote, and I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched that part, is that in addition to disrupting other industries, they're interested in disrupting the credit card industry and they're taking aim at this whole idea that our user data should be open for sale with or without our knowledge and, and Apple is taking that on. And so the Apple card is is actually part of that same movement where Apple is is requiring transparency in the kinds of data tracking that's happening with apps in the store, et cetera. So that's just a little footnote to that announcement. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then something that had surprised me, in part because it feels like they're a little late to the party, Apple announced that they will be re- releasing a redesigned podcast app, um, which I think is a long time coming. Their podcast app has been uh, pretty stagnant for a very long time, which has created a lot of great alternative apps in the uh, in the iOS app store, but still um, long time coming. The interesting piece about this is they're going to allow creators to set up systems to collect payment uh, via the Apple podcast app. Um, and so I will tell you that we have no announcement tonight about pay, uh, charging for the EdTech Situation Room. The thing that I think is really interesting about this, and this is not Apple's deal, it's everyone's deal, that part of the problem with that, in my humble opinion, is that the Apple Podcast app is only available on, on Apple-produced devices. And, um, you know, you do tend to get a certain kind of consumer with Apple, so it may work out to offer, you know, special content, adless content, maybe additional content as part of a podcast feed. But I can't imagine a lot of creators would focus on the Apple ecosystem only uh, not allowing others to take advantage of, of advanced features as they would charge for. So that was an interesting piece. Uh, there's new purple. Oh, please, sir. Yeah. So I dropped in your uh, recode Vox article about that on the podcast of scripture plans. Um, I just dropped in a Gizmodo article that I put in the same, uh, same uh, category of Apple entitled the podcast war has begun. Uh, by John Biggs, and this was yesterday on the uh, 20th of April. So we've talked about this on the show, the purchase by Spotify of Gimlet Media and Anchor, and this play for exclusive content. You're seeing that on Netflix. You're seeing that on, you know, Disney Plus or whatever, Apple Apple TV Plus, um, you know, all of these different platforms, exclusive content. Famously, Joe Rogan, who's all of his shows are not family friendly, um, but he's got some pretty, you know, pretty, pretty good interviews with some different people. I've listened to a handful of his shows over the years. You know, he's exclusive to Spotify now. He had to delete some of his shows. Some of his content was was deleted 
I don't know if I put that in the show notes here a couple weeks ago, but this is a good article about the podcast wars and what this may present for podcasters is the need to have multiple feeds, right? So you may still have a public feed out there that any kind of aggregator can pick up, you know, Google Home. Um, Jason and I are both fans of Pocket Casts, which is an Australian-based podcast app. It's available on Android. It's available on on Apple. Hey, and if you even switch from one to another, your your feed syncs up. Just log in with your account. It's beautiful. But you know, I've I've been hearing more podcasters, you know, using Patreon and then having bonus episodes for subscribers and yeah. things like that. Um, one of the stunning statistics that was in the Apple event yesterday is that in, it, it, when they launched podcasts in, in, in iTunes at the time, now it's called Apple music or something like there were just a, like 3000. It was in the thousand, it was in, it was below 10,000. I think it was like 3000 or 5,000 podcasts. There's over a million, a million podcasts. So if you want to talk about a statistic that represents the incredible fractured landscape of information today, you know, look at how many podcasts are available in 2021 compared to the early days of 2005. So I love podcasts. I love learning with podcasts. We mentioned on the show a while back, China never had a free podcast model. And so they've been monetized for the whole time. Obviously, people need to make money, but there's all kinds of people in this situation. You know, there's professional journalists and tech journalists and others. And, you know, Substack has become this 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 newsletter format that a number of journalists are are being very successful with and being able to get subscriptions and supporting themselves with. And that is exciting. But I think that it's, this is going to be a continued fracturization, if that's even a word, fracturization, more fractured landscape of, of podcasts. Um, so yeah, I'm sure Jason and I'll have some conversations about that. Honestly, it doesn't appeal to me that we're, we're, yeah, we're doing this every week, but you know, we're not making our living doing this. We're not getting anything for this actually. So you guys need to come hire us to come, you know, keynote your company. (laughs) Exactly. Way, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Knifer.com, Westfire.com. But the the thing I would also note here that the coming podcast war is is going to be extraordinary. What I hope happens though is that it doesn't create a a platform where 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 small free shops like ours can't be in the open marketplace anymore. If we have to start submitting our podcasts to dozens of different uh, ar- architectures to do that, that's going to diminish, I think, the value of of smaller podcasts like ours. Like obviously, we're not making bank on this. We're not making anything at all on it, to be honest. Um, uh, we get what we get out of this is the ability to talk to uh, uh, a lot of fo- folks in, in different geographical areas. I've, I've, I've had people come up to me at ISTE and at, at uh, DLAC and introduce themselves to me as listeners to the podcast. It stunned me a little bit. Uh, one person said that, they, that they'd heard my voice walking down the hallway at, at a conference and said, is that Jason Neifer? And I'm like, how do you even know my name, right? And that, that in itself is maybe worth the hour we spend a week. But we do this because we enjoy each other's company and we like talking about this it helps us and we, we love meeting with peggy we love meeting with peggy so exactly go. right yeah exactly right um but you know uh, spot spotify has been making moves for over two years in the podcast uh uh area and i just hope that i i think it's great to add economics to this i think it's great to make a a, a clear way for people to make money to do this to want to make this a career but my my sincere hope is that we can still allow this to be be a an open marketplace an open platform 
for people like ourselves and for kids too, I might add, um, to continue to publish to white audiences. And one more thought I have on this is I know Jason, you mentioned several times that you, you know, contribute to some Patreons and, and, and pay for journalism and, and quality journalism is worth paying for. I think we all are probably going to start getting adjusted, but this is a good mindset thing to think about. You know, what is our monthly spend on media? Uh, the, probably our local cable company has had a lion's share of that. Probably. I mean, you don't actually have to have to pay for cable to get open air, you know, television programming in our area. We've got some real, you know, powerful antennas. And, you know, if, if you just want to watch that, you can. That's, that's actually how we uh, watch uh, the weather, you know, when it's tornado season, as it is right now, actually. We're, we're gearing up right into the, right into it right now. But, um, I think that for a healthy society and culture, in this interconnected world, we are going to want a lot of people to pay small amounts to different information sources, companies, and, and journalists. And the alternative to that would be just these huge, massive companies, big media, which we've already, we've seen that movie before, big media dominating. And what Jason is talking about, and I totally agree with is, you know, it's incredible to just be a creator out there and be on Apple's podcast, people to be able to subscribe to you and, and to be on smart uh, speakers, right? And to be able to say, hey, play the latest episode of, you know, the EdTech Situation Room. And you start to hear it. It's really powerful and cool. So um, I don't think that the the small creators are, are I, I think it's still a good time and we're going to continue to, we're going to see a struggle, right? Just as we see big tech struggling to, deal with a lot of things, you know, companies and corporations are, are going to continue to want to make money and, and lots of people are going to be able to make money. And I think there's room for that. But as individuals, and this is maybe something I need to talk to my wife about and we can consider like even budgeting, maybe maybe that's something yeah. that needs to be in our monthly budget to say, hey, we're going to have this chunk of change. And then I'm we're going to use that to support some different creators that we really like listening to and want to listen to. Now, the fact is we're all going to have a limit to that. That will be an interesting study. So maybe if you're looking for your dissertation topic, maybe you can, that'll be a topic you can study. Like how many, what, you know, what's going to be the cap? Because you're probably not going to be supporting, you know, a hundred different creators out there. But anyway, the, the media that you're wanting to pay for. And then the other thing that's, it was in the twit podcast, I think from this past Sunday, they talked about aggregators and Apple's unsuccessfully done that with Apple News. Of course, they try to keep that just on the Apple platform, but there are going to be groups probably that will continue, you know, to aggregate and then for you to make the decision to say, oh, okay, it's kind of like Disney or, you know, Disney Plus. Oh, well, look at, you know, Marvel and, and, um, you know, Star Wars and National Geographic and Pixar and like, okay, that, that's a bundle I want to pay for. Probably we're going to see smaller creators join together in, in these different organizations and there'll, there'll be a lot of stuff happening, but it is a new twist. Some people would say it's been a long time coming for Apple to be able to offer this, but it's not just Apple. They're actually in this case, I think responding to other things that we're seeing that are very successful, like Patreon, like Substack. And then we're seeing Spotify make this really big play to try to have you just listen on Spotify. We hope you'll listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. And you probably have heard us say that before. So hopefully that will not change. Yep, absolutely. Okay, other products announced. Do you care at all about a purple iPhone? 
as a K-State Wildcat fan. <laughs> Freaking great. I'm ready to go order one tomorrow, but you know, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've actually put, you know, put, put a couple iPhones on, on plans recently and I'm not, not going to be in the market for that, but it, you know, yeah, it's cool. And I do have an affinity for purple, but the one I'm most excited about are the air tags. And I think you put an article about air tags yeah. in there. Uh, air tags are, I guess it's going to be actually an open, uh, AP, API. Um, Jason put the nine to five Mac article from yesterday. Apple officially un, um, unveils the air tag item tracker. Um, I think you can get like five of these for a hundred dollars or something like that. Yeah. And it's going to be directional and it also leverages the ecosphere of all these iPhones that are out in the world. Right. So, you know, what do you want to put one of these things on luggage, a dog, um, you know, your remote control in your house and you've played with tiles before. Yep. So are you, does this new technology excite you any more than the tile did? Or do you think it's just, you know, kind of a shift and this is just Apple's version? I'm have to see what the features look like because that that matters to me a lot. But but Tile already is pretty advanced in this architecture and does exactly what you were talking about that the Apple tags will do. What I love about this is that um, you know if I lose something um, and it's it's lost in a location that's not my home, right? Like I do have one of these sitting on my keys. I have one sitting in my backpack. I have one a super thin one that's sitting in my wallet. Um, but you know, if I'm running late in the morning and I've lost my keys, all I need to do is to take my tile or, t- or turn my tile app on and it will, uh, uh, find it. It will tell me how close it is to me and then it will start a, a sound so I can go and find it. And I found, you know, my keys in the couch cushions before and, you know, falling behind a, a, a counter or something on a countertop. And it's been really great. Um, I will tell you that in, in the most uniquely Apple thing ever, the tags themselves need uh, like a case or something around. They don't come with a hook to put on a key ring. So instead, you could buy a $300 one right now from Apple that is very fancy. It's a designer version of that. And I noticed yesterday when I went and looked that Amazon now has uh, hundreds of cheap uh, tag holders that you can buy. But I think it's a very clever model. Um, I, I'll need to see if, if, if Apple ends up putting an app on Android. My understanding from the articles I read today is that uh, Android apps can also be part of the ecosystem. So I don't exactly know what that means unless you have the app download itself. But one of the cool things about Tile is that it utilizes other Tile users. And so, um, you know, if I'm uh, at an airport uh, and a couple days later, I'll get a notification saying someone thanked me because my phone sniffed out a Tile uh, at an airport and let a user know that, you know, where the general location was of an item that they had lost. I think it's a really clever idea. I think it's smart for Apple to go in this direction. Um, I did, and I wish I'd thrown the article in, I do know that Tile has already started responding in a way to suggest they are panicked that Apple's in this ecosystem now. But I love Tile. Tile's been a really great thing for me, and I think it's a really wonderful uh, strategy for, for keeping an eye on your stuff. Okay, well, we've got about, uh, well, we started maybe a minute or two later. So we got about 17 or 18 minutes. We've been like exactly an hour and three minutes, by the way, for like three weeks in a row. So that's kind of, kind of wild. Um, you've got great security, uh, headlines in there and, and Google World and some others. So where, 
what other burning issues do you definitely want to get to, Dr. Neifer, or even categories? Let's let's talk about a couple quick Google articles. Uh, first, a Chrome Unbox article from yesterday that Lenovo is going to release two MediaTek Chromebooks, uh, and these are low-end Chromebooks, and not, not low-end as in cheap, but low-end as in inexpensive, in that the MediaTek processors we've been talking about are ARM-based processors. Uh, MediaTek is a Chinese-based manufacturer of uh, chips, and the MediaTek chipset is considered to be a low-end chipset, but the MediaTek chipset was the same chipset that was in the Lenovo Duo, um, uh, uh, Duo Duet. Duo, uh, the, the tablet, they, the Chrome OS tablet they released last year that is still considered to be the best Chrome OS tablet and it's, it's pretty speedy implementation of Chrome OS. And the reason why I mention this is because I do think that this is turning out to be not the year of the ARM processor because it really started last year. I think it's going to go into this year and next year, but all the major platforms, Chrome OS, Mac OS, and Microsoft, I think are going to find their way on non-Intel, non-X86 hardware. And I think that's an interesting thing to come. And then um, I want to talk about one quick news one and then maybe one that's a little more for discussion. Uh, Chrome Unboxed highlighted something that frustrated the snot out of me last week. Um, last week I opened up, uh, so, uh, my, my, my day job, the Montana Digital Academy were a Google shop. And so I do 99% of my document work in Google Docs, right? That's where I do it. I very rarely open Word, got access to Word. I just don't need it because I prefer Google Docs. I love it. Wrote my dissertation in it. Google Docs has been a good friend of mine for a long time. And I noticed something last week that I was opening up my Docs and for some reason, the it it was like there was no right border to the page and every line ran over to where there was one paragraph per line so i thought it was just one document i start making all these changes to it trying to fix it because it was a document that need that needed to be accessible to the public um then um i i i sent a link over to uh a, a good friend of mine and coworker mike to see he says no it looks fine dude i don't know what your problem is so i so i started opening up other google docs include uh, uh and it, it it all of them were were funkified and i couldn't figure out what it was and mike goes well check to see do you have any plugins that that may be uh, impacting it so i turned plugin after plugin off on my work account and it turns out my ad blocker was creating the issue. And so Chrome Unbox noted uh, that uh, your ad blocker may be responsible for screwing up your Google Docs. My understanding is they corrected the issue now. But, oh, my Lord, that was frustrating. But that's happened to me a couple of times now in the last couple of years to where one of my plugins in Chrome has substantially impacted my use of, of, of the platform, uh, the web platform in some way, shape, or form. And so always consider getting rid of plugins you don't need, turning off plugins you don't use very often, um, and then turning off ones to troubleshoot. And then I would also remind folks of the Extensity, E-X-T-E-N-S-I-T-Y. That's an excellent plugin for Chrome that allows you essentially to turn off plugins that you're not um, uh, uh, not using at any given time um, uh, uh, for the purpose of... Um, uh, you're keeping them installed and at your fingertips if you need them, but then having them not be active otherwise. What is your uh, your ad blocker of choice on Chrome now, Dr. Neifer? Uh, well, I don't have one at all on my work account anymore because I deleted it, but the one I'm using uh, otherwise is AdBlock. Oh, okay. I still use uBlock Origin, and it's still a revelation when I share that at school. It's not something that all the students have been exposed to. and. Yeah. 
hopefully we've shared that with teachers, but I mean, being able to block all ads on YouTube, pre-roll, in the videos, everything. I mean, I just cringe whenever I'm in a educational setting and I see someone playing a YouTube video and uh, an ad for Grammarly or whatever comes up first, or there's a little ad at the bottom and it's like, please. And, and honestly, it's one of the reasons, you know, I think I've mentioned this. We're going Chromebook for our one to one next year. All grades. We've had iPads for sixth grade on a test basis this year. Love the iPad. I've enjoyed it. I'm going to miss many things about it, but I love being able to, to block ads in, in, uh, for myself and, and certainly in teaching, et cetera. So that is good to know. And, um, Another related issue with Chrome, and I don't have an article for this, but my wife had been having trouble with Seesaw and activities because there was something in a new Chrome build that had actually caused these issues. And so she'd had to move to Firefox for a while, and it was documented in some Facebook groups and forums and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, the interplay. This was a core feature of Chrome, actually, that had broken that. And Seesaw, I, hopefully they've they've resolved that. But, uh you know, we need we need to be updating our our uh, our software, you know, and unfortunately that has caused her to be a little gun shy of the hey, time to update Chrome. Um, you know, it's something that we all need to to be keeping updated in as far as security. But you do want to be wary. And I think it's still good to have more than one browser on your machine. Doesn't happen that often that we need to say, hey, we better fire up Firefox or, you know, fire up Safari or something different. But. Anyway, there are different different browsers, and your troubleshooting technique is absolutely on target. Extensity is wonderful. Anytime people are having wonky things happen, restarting the computer, disabling all extensions, and then re-enabling them selectively and seeing if the issue recurs, those are very good troubleshooting techniques. And especially on a Chromebook, there's not that many things that can go wrong. So once you've restarted extensions, you know, you can power wash. I mean, that's about it. That's like you've got a brand new, brand new machine, but uh, extensions will still come back when you log in. So being able to yep. disable those and troubleshoot is a good technique to know for yourself and to be able to recommend to students and colleagues. And then a last article that I think is super interesting, um, uh, Chrome Unbox reported on April 19th that there is a new documents tab in Google Photos that could be more for your future drive storage. And we had mentioned that uh, Google Lens technology, which is the technology that uh, uh, I think it was purchased by Google several years ago and has been integrated into their systems. But if you go to Google Photos now, and I was going to double check this uh, tonight before we jumped on, but there's a new documents tab that takes all of the things that you've you snapped photographs of when, when you upload Google Photos and puts them in its own document tab. And that's been a strategy of mine literally for 15 years now, right? Where I, uh, on a smartphone or in a camera, I would take a document and, and take a quick photo of it to, to scan it for time. But, um, uh, uh, Michael Pergio at Chrome Unbox talks about how that this is probably a strategy, uh, that over time, um, will create more, uh, and interesting ways for Google to kind of capture your data to make it useful for you. And so one thing we talked about, I think it was two weeks ago, was that you can now copy and paste. There's an automatic OCR that happens in documents that you can just copy and paste text of things that you 
upload to Google Photos. And so I, this seems kind of appley to me, actually, this notion of trying to add more functionality to something that, that's already integrated together in everything that you do. But I love Google Photos. It's an important part of what I do. In fact, um, I got received an email from today from Google telling me that my uh, storage plan that was a, a free gift from Google when I purchased a Chromebook a couple of years ago is coming to an end, which means that um, I, I, I would need to purchase uh, storage to continue to have uh, enough of what's there. I'm only using 90 gigabytes on my personal account, so it's not a huge amount of, of data, but 40 gigs of that is Google Photos. And I'm, you know, frankly, for the $2 a month I spend for 100 gigs from Google, it's more than worth it to me to keep all my photographs in one location. Absolutely. And we've had that conversation as well. I think we did have a Chromebook that gave us more storage space or whatever, but you know, we're paying a little bit to Apple each month for iCloud storage. I think it's absolutely worth every penny and all of us are hopefully having our, our iPhones and iDevices regularly back up. We've got iCloud drive enabled. So desktop documents, those things are backed up. And then with Google, and I had to make sure that the kids had each joined our Google family to be able to share the, share the space. So incidentally, I, recently removed our son from our family in Apple, but that was because he wanted to continue an Apple music subscription and we did not. And so anyway, playlists and all those things, in case you're wondering, move just fine when you reach the point of maturity and you're no longer part of your family's Apple family. But I don't think, I don't know, I don't know that we've had, we don't have to remove him from Google. So, you know, he's still part of that storage space, but this is part of what we've talked about on the show before. And it's been a couple of weeks, but you know, Google's a company. Google's making money. We've seen changes um, in the education space as far as everything's not free now. And there are these paid enterprise tiers. And I believe some of those are worth paying for. The The admin tools are really powerful. And we've had several situations where I, as, as no longer the tech director, I'm not doing it, but other people, you know, have, have done some searches and be able to find some things and do some detective work that is only available if you have that more advanced admin console feature and then being able to, um, as a consumer needing, you know, to pay for some storage. Hey, there's things that are worth paying for. And, um, I mean, can I imagine life without Google? Uh, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to pay for the incredible power and collaborative possibilities that it puts at my fingertips every day. If using Google's wrong, I don't want to be right, Wes. <laughs> There's a quote. I think that may be the show title. Right <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we have a little bit more time. So what else, sir? Sure. One quick Microsoft article, just because I noticed this before I saw the article. Um, let's see. The good folks at the 9to5Google reported that there is a new Microsoft Edge feature called Performance Mode that is, remember, uh, a follow-up from, we've talked about this probably a dozen times now, that Microsoft Edge, the primary Microsoft browser, is built on top of Chromium, which is an open-source Google product. And as it turns out, Microsoft, you know, was criticized uh, pretty roundly criticized for going in that direction because they felt as though this would diminish creativity and innovation because the original Edge browser, which wasn't a primary browser for me, but I thought was a perfectly uh, a good alternative to Chrome, uh, that development went away. But what's happening now is, is Microsoft's building some really interesting stuff on top of Chromium to try to distinguish itself from Chrome. And this performance mode essentially 
adds in tweaks on top of the Chromium open source browser, including some new performance measures that, that its performance mode allows the browser to scale back, especially for modest CPUs and modest amounts of memory. And the reason why I noticed this is because I do use the Edge browser um, on my laptop and desktop, uh, especially as it relates to some projects I do that are Microsoft shops. And the other day I noticed that one of the tabs was d- dimmer than the other. And I went to go look, and there was a, a little pop-up notification there saying, this tab has been put to sleep to diminish resources. And I was like, well, that's really clever. You can buy, not buy, you can download Chrome extensions that do something similar to that. Um, but this performance mode uh, is is baked into Edge. And the idea is, is that it's going to be uh, useful for, you know, kind of uh, tab addicts. Um, I'm a tab addict. I would guess that Dr. Fryer's a tab addict. My friend, Mike Agostinelli, is a tab addict to the extreme. For those that do that, um, it's going to you know, diminish those resources. And so very interesting thing on behalf of Microsoft. Yes, um, I use Tab Suspender. The Great Suspender, I think, actually has more users and reviews, but um, Tab Suspender is one that I have used for years, and that is uh, related to a little back-channel conversation with Peggy talking about ad blockers. You can run more than one, but be aware, everything that you're running on your machine, just like, you know, with Windows in the system tray or Apple up in the menu bar, like all these different things, they all use memory and resources. This is actually one reason why it's nice to blow your machine away, completely have everything backed up, install a pristine copy of your operating system, and then only install the things that you really need. Because a lot of us over time end up, you know, installing this label printer and then, you know, get this Adobe thing and, and oh, look, they're going to run at startup. And on the Mac, you can, I'm sure you probably use this a lot, Jason, but just like on Windows where you have the activity monitor, you have a process, uh, what's it called? Uh, I think actually Windows calls it an activity or a process manager and it's called an activity monitor. And so if you go into your utilities folder of your Mac, you will see the file activity monitor. Again, here's a quick little troubleshooting mini lesson. Um, Open up activity monitor and you have different tabs and you can see what's using the most CPU. You can click over to the memory tab and see what's using the most memory. And it's kind of shocking sometimes to see how much Chrome uses. So I would just say caution, beware, you know, all Ad blockers are not created the same. That's one of the reasons I like uBlock Origin. It's pretty thin and light in terms of its memory consumption. And just don't have more extensions turned on than you need to, the same way that you shouldn't have a whole lot of extra software that just runs at startup, you know, so it's there and it's quick, but, you know, there's a cost for that. Now we have so much memory in our machines and they're so fast, maybe you're not going to notice, but it can make a difference. And especially on lighter devices like student devices and Chromebooks, you know, having a ton of tabs open can, can, can cause memory issues. Thinking about video conferencing in, in Google Meet and things like that, you know, there, there are lots of folks for whom memory is still at a premium and these kind of things make a difference. So be aware of the impact that it has and just, you know, take a look and take an audit every once in a while, seeing everything that you've got open and all the things you have running. Maybe you can purge a little bit and open up some more memory on your machine. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, hey, would you mind doing that motherboard article about the FBI? Uh, that's a pretty big headline, I think. Yeah. 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 
Uh, this is from last week, Motherboard Report on April 13th. The FBI decided that there was a number of exchange server hacks that have happened uh, in the last several months. And uh, the FBI released bulletins to across Fortune 500 companies, schools, and universities, and noticed there were still hundreds of unpatched servers across the United States. And so they decided to hack into those servers and to patch the vulnerability themselves. That, and that's incredible that I don't, if that's ever happened, I don't know that it's been announced that that sounds unprecedented to me. No, I, it, it has to be. And to be clear, I mean, I have the most mixed of mixed feelings about this because I feel like that, that uh, I'm almost certain that, um, uh, uh, it, 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 that they had to, to make contact. They had to attempt to make contact. Right. And, you know, the FBI very regularly sends out security bulletins to security firms, uh, to higher education, to scientific institutions, to corporate uh, interest in the United States. When there are hacks discovered, there's a very active infrastructure for that in the United States. I would also note that the FBI also obtained a court order. So it's not like, um, you know, they were doing this rogue, but yes, I, I thought the same thing when I read this, that if this has happened before, it, it hasn't been a particularly announced. And, um, you know, I, there's, uh, it's a dangerous world we live in. We've talked about this a couple of different times, uh, several weeks ago. And Wes, I know you had mentioned this, um, uh, in, in, um, the HBO series that you would like to watch that, and it, the quotations from that series talked about that the next war is going to be virtual and it will have a lot of collateral damage in regards to us as consumers and as computer users. Forget the next war. The war is happening right yeah. now. It is truly occurring today, full on cyber war happening between China and the US, Russia and the US, North Korea, Iran, these other these other actors and um it is going to influence more and more the kinetic war. We have cyber war and we have kinetic war and I just think a lot of us are asleep to how incredibly hostile international relations are today, how important collaboration is and you know also I don't know. I, I I could pontificate philosophically and politically on on how important you know it is for us to try to find uh, common ground and ho- and hopefully to you know to have governments that are not that are not authoritarian and you know they can actually be allies together. But it is the more I read, <laughs> the more I know I need to go back to my password manager and make sure I got all those things changed because you know it is it's it's a dangerous world out there, kids. Take care of yourselves. All right. We have gone past the top of the hour, sir. Anything else you wanted to hit before Geeks of the Week? Uh, no, although I will tease that next week I'd love to talk about Dogecoin. And with that, we're going to have everyone with bated breath waiting for, for next week. So my Geek of the Week quickly is that I'm doing a webinar on Saturday, and it's free. And it is uh, actually going to be a slightly modified version of what I shared for our middle school language teachers a few years ago. Uh, shout out to Joe Dale. This is going to be for the, uh, uh, some language teachers in England. So if you're in England, uh, it's on Saturday from 3.30 PM to 4.30 PM. Tune in. If you're here in U.S. Central Time, it'll be 9.30 AM, 10.30, 9.30 AM to 10.30 AM. So it's called Lesson Ideas and Tips for Language Teachers Using Scratch, Minecraft, and More. And it is free. So you can register 
with Eventbrite. How about you, Dr. Knife? Well, I want to mention that with new hardware coming along um, from Apple, this is a wonderfully important time uh, to consider selling your old devices before you buy new ones. And I have two recommendations there. One of them is Swappa, which is, uh, I, I, in fact, I'm 99% sure that you turned me on to Swappa, Dr. Fryer, but it's a place to go buy and sell used items. And then also Gazelle is a little less of a, a fussy one in that they will tell you how much they'll pay you. They send you a box, you send it back to them. No fuss, no muss. And the reason why I mention it this week is because um, a couple weeks ago, I, I, I wanted to buy a, 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 a an updated iPad. I had a an iPad Mini 2 that was no longer being updated anymore, but I wanted one with a lot of storage on it so I could put movies on it for when I'm traveling again. And then I also wanted one with a, um, the ability to go for cell towers because I have a tablet plan on T-Mobile. And those are really expensive. And so I priced out an iPad Air 3 that's this thing right here. Um, and it, I, I, I have one that, that I, it, it was, it definitely wasn't new, but I couldn't tell, uh, there wasn't any, any damage to it, but I went around my office and found electronics I was no longer using and I sold them on Swappa. And then I used that money to buy, uh, basically, uh, directly buy then, um, my new iPad Air 3, which, uh, is wonderful. And so, uh, selling used electronics is a great strategy to do that. I have a couple friends that are always seem to have the new stuff and it's because that they're regularly selling the stuff they aren't using anymore instead of letting it sit in, in, in a drawer in your home. And don't let it sit there too long because it loses value and you can't get as much for it. So. All Absolutely. Right. Thank Peggy for joining us live. Encourage any of you who can to join us live. Usually on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, uh, middle of the night if you are in UTC. All of our show notes and referenced articles can be found at edstar.com slash links. And actually what I end up doing, and I will, I apologize for posting our shows late the last couple of weeks. Um, I'll try to do that a little faster this week. Um, Usually now I'm going to YouTube and I, I, I tap live replay. Interestingly, that's not the, the, ch- the text chat, which we, d- we drop all of the links in as we go along the show. Uh, and Peggy sometimes drops in links as well, which are great. Um, they're not available immediately. It takes a little while for YouTube to process them, but in a day or so, you can change it from top chat to live chat, go all the way to the end of the show, and then you can just scroll down through all of the links that we have in order. But you can also just go to our website to see that. So we encourage everyone to stay savvy, stay safe. Please follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. We do sometimes take a break. And if we do, we'll always let you know on Twitter. But you can also find us on Facebook and subscribe to us on YouTube. Let us know if you listen to the show. We do love feedback. So until next time, happy trails. Good night.